All right, we're going to start this morning with some trivia. It's always kind of fun to, fun to do, some trivia. And the, uh, the topic of trivia this morning is Moses. All right, so let's see how well we do with uh, trivia and Moses. Okay, who adopted Moses? Thatcher. Daughter of Pharaoh, good. Okay. Um, why did Moses flee to the land of Midian? Yes, he killed an Egyptian. Good job, Jack. Good job. All right. So why did God send Moses back to Egypt? That's you answered one already. Jack, you answered one already. Madeline, is it you? No. To kill the bad guys? Is that what I heard? Sort of. Sort of. Yes, Cora. To set the people free. Exactly right. Okay. So I'm thinking we're going to get some more difficult. Okay, some, some parental participation in this. Okay, you ready? Okay. So what psalm did Moses write? Adults? Really? Psalm? The Psalm of Moses? Psalm, Psalm 90. Good job, David. Good job. Okay. All right. No, little one. Who was Moses' wife? Who? Zipporah. Good. Okay. So we're going to... What's the name of Moses' firstborn son? Gershom. Who said that? Good. Second... What about the secondborn son? Anybody? I wish I had some candy up here that I could throw you. I'd give some rewards. Second born son of Moses. We're stumped on that one, huh? We're trying to cheat, huh? Google. Tell me, Google. Well, we're going to be too fast for Google. Um, Eliezer. Eliezer. Okay. Um, how about this? Um, who were Moses' parents? Amram, his dad, and Jochebed. Good job. Good job. Okay. How about um, where did Moses die? On the earth, yes. Where did he die? Okay, Thatcher? I don't think so. Where did Moses die? Outside of Canaan, but he, there was a place. Mount Mount something, yes. Off a cliff, no, not off a cliff. Mount Nebo. Nebo. All right. All right, maybe, um, um, okay, why did Moses make a bronze snake? To save the people from what kind of plague? Snake bites, yeah, exactly right. So we could, we could go on and on, I got a bunch more questions here. Um, but we start with trivia of Moses, not because Moses is trivial, right? 
but because he's the topic of my message this morning, is Moses. And he's the topic of my message this morning because he's the topic of Stephen's sermon when he preached his final sermon. And we find his final sermon in Acts chapter 7. You can turn with me there in your Bibles if you, if you can. I just encourage you to. You can follow along there, Acts chapter 7. Um, my message this morning is, in, is entitled, Stephen's Sermon, Part 2, because last week was Part 1. We looked at verses 2 through verse 16, in which Stephen worked his way through the history of Israel. We, he looked at the history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And, and in so doing, Stephen was making a point. When, when God worked in the life of the patriarchs, he did so away from the promised land. In other words, right, it wasn't in Jerusalem itself when he was working the lives of the, the patriarchs. It was, it was away from the temple. It was away from the, the holy place. And, and I just say that that's the relentless point he made because that was the accusation that came against him. Acts chapter 6, 13 and 14 are, are the key verses really to understand Stephen's sermon, which, by the way, is very difficult to understand. But I think if you, if you use this paradigm here in verses 13 and 14 of Acts 6, this will help you. He says, these are false witnesses coming against Jesus. They are false witnesses, but there was an element of truth in them, of course. This man, they say, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. There it is, the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. That is the holy place, will destroy the temple. And change the customs of the law that Moses delivered to us. There's the law. There's the, the temple and the law. Uh, Stephen knew that Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And uh, furthermore, Jesus, Stephen knew that the temple was no longer needed. Because the sacrifice of Jesus had taken place. He, he abolished all sacrifices. All need of sacrifices. Because he's our supreme sacrifice. Also, Jesus knew... Peter, Stephen knew that Jesus had fulfilled the law. And in fulfilling the law, changes the customs of the law, changes the application of the law, because there are many things in the law we don't have to do. The obvious thing is sacrifices and priests. And so these two themes, the temple and the law, are the, the theme of Stephen's sermon. Um, but you might, you might even say this. I, I read one guy this week who said the temple and the Torah. It's kind of a nice, right? T-T, temple, Torah. You can think about it that way. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, but Stephen is relentless in his sermon. If either talking about God working in places that aren't, isn't the temple or in demonstrating how people never really kept the law in the first place. So, so last week we saw Stephen address Abraham and the patriarchs. And, and we traced out the, just the working of, of God in the life of Abraham. And we saw that Abraham, God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Particularly he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. And... Um, God told him to, to go out, didn't tell him where to go. He told him to go, and Abraham said, we believed, and he went. And uh, his first stop was in Haran. And, and there, Abraham re remained for a time. That's up, he went just uh, northwest up there to Haran. You can see a little arrow there. And he stayed there for a time, at least to get some possessions that he then gathered and brought then into the promised land. Now, when Abraham went into the promised land, he inherited no land. As it says in, in chapter 7 and verse 5, not even a foot's length of land did he inherit. Um, and he, he, he went to places like, even I put there on the map, places like Shechem and Bethel and Ai. 
His home base wasn't in Jerusalem. There was no holy place for Abraham. And yet God, here's the father of the faith, that, that God worked apart from the law. And God worked apart from this holy place. And that's Stephen's sermon, and just the idea of that. And then after only three generations, problems in the family, and Abraham's grandchildren were at strife with one another. And these are who we call the patriarchs. And that's who we began to look at in verse 8 and following. And rather than loving each other, like the law would call us to, they, were, they had strife with one another. And the sons of Jacob sold their brother into Egypt as a slave where he was wrongfully treated. But if we look, even there again, right? They're down in Egypt. And they were there, right, for 400 years. And God was still working in their life. Particularly, God was working with Joseph's life. When he gave him the wisdom and to understand this dream that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, which brought him favor in Pharaoh and, and poised him to be second in command in Egypt and, and poised him then to be the salvation of the people of Israel um, out of the land of Palestine. Because they found food in Egypt. They found favor with Pharaoh to relocate um, and there they were, 400 years, apart from the promised land. But was God done with them? No, God was with them for 400 years. And so these Jews, which so lifted up this holy place in the temple, in the land which they had, missed 400 years of their history. The 400 years, that's longer than we as a nation have even been uh, a nation. And God was with them so well that they prophesied in the land of Egypt and they prophesied so much they caused problems with the Egyptians, they enslaved them. Well, that's where our text picks up here in verse 17. So let's read Acts chapter 7 and verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they'd not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons, Gershon and Eleazar. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And my preaching today, that's all. We're going to get through verse 34 today. 
But I want to read the rest of the text um, just so you get a sense of how the first part has been focused upon the location of Moses, how he's not been in the land of Palestine. But the second really brings up um, this whole aspect of how they didn't keep the law, how they even rejected Moses. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. There it is. He, 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 had, he had the law that he gave them. But our fathers... Here it is. They resisted the law. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets in Amos chapter 5. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. You just see the height of rebellion. Even Aaron, even that generation, refused the Lord, built this calf. So God turned away, and so they took up the tent of Moloch. That is... That is infant worship, right? Sacrificing infants to worship God. In these verses, right, all the way through here about Moses, right? They're about how God dealt with him and how the people dealt with Moses. God was active in the life of Moses. He saved him as a baby, appeared to him in the burning bush, spoke to him in the mountain, established him as ruler and redeemer of the people of Israel, gave him the law to give to the people, but the people didn't appreciate Moses. Instead, they rejected him. They, they failed to understand that God would be the means through which he would rescue them from slavery. They refused to obey him. They turned to other gods. And uh, in the life of Moses, right, we see Stephen bringing out these themes, right? The, the temple and the Torah. Uh, the, the temple, the God's working life of Moses wasn't in the land of Israel. It, it was in Egypt. And then it was in Midian. And then even it was wandering in the desert, Moses never stepped foot in the promised land. He only looked on the promised land. And he died where? Mount Nebo. Good. He died on Mount Nebo. Overlooking the land. And, and, and for the Jews who so treasured the temple, how easy they forget that the hero of their faith never stepped foot in the promised land. Never saw a temple. I mean... In some regards, this is where a great application comes for us. Like, we, we might not treasure the temple, right? We, we might not treasure this holy place. But the implications of that, some of you, though, might, might treasure this place, this church, meaning that God is neglected throughout the week, but you come here to get God. You might be just like the Jews. You need to realize that, no, God is everywhere. That, that we have our Bibles that we can bring home, that we can worship the Lord even in our homes. Right, so even us, just, just even see, is there, a, is there a holy place that we have? Is there a place that we focus on? This church, this building. Or do we genuinely bring God home with us? 
Right? In other words, right, are we worshiping the Lord in our families? Are we worshiping the Lord in the Word? And it's interesting, furthermore, these people of Israel rejected Moses, the giver of the law, and they rejected the law itself. And these people who, who received these living oracles, that they lifted high, they, they saw, well, they, they never really lived after them anyway. Really, the challenge for us is how, how high do we see the Word of God? In the prayer meeting this morning, a Bible verse we looked at just briefly was Philippians 2. Verse 12 and 13 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's just, it's just longing for the word, passionately working it out with fear and trembling in our lives. Right? In humility walking and uh, walking without grumbling and complaining as we seek to walk and live uh, a righteous life. But, but they refused the law. These people who held the law so high actually were disobeying the law. So those are the two themes. We see those in Exodus uh, or in, in Acts chapter 7. But we're just going to find time to go from verses 17 to verse 34 today. We're going to look first at Moses' birth. And the whole emphasis here is that God is working outside of the temple area. He begins with a historical context of when Moses was born. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt surely with their race and forced their fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. This is the story of the nation of Israel. Several hundred years in Egypt. And they prospered and they grew. They started as, as shepherds in Goshen. And they just started with 70 people. And they grew and they grew and they grew and they grew. Where estimates are close to a million people by this time. And, um, and, and after that happened... the. The Pharaoh rose up, he forgot all about Joseph, didn't remember the promise, the great blessing he was, and, and then began to say, oh, we got all these people, they're going to overrun us. And so he enslaved them. And even enslaving them wasn't enough. Instead, this tyrannical king sought to extinguish the nation through systematic killing of their infants. It's not so much different than the Holocaust, by the way. It's not so much different what happened in Germany in the 1940s when Adolf Hitler sought to systematically Eliminate these same people from the face of the earth, the Hebrew people, the Jews. So it's not wrong, right, when you think of the Egyptian pharaoh to think about Hitler. Because that's what he was doing, is trying to kill the baby boys. But God had his hand on Moses because he had a plan in his life. When Moses was born, the Lord took notice of him. God noticed that Moses was a beautiful baby. Um, if you look there in verse 20, we see this. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. That just speaks about God being aware of this baby Jewish boy being born in the land of Egypt. Called beautiful here. Now, as a pastor of a young church, I've visited quite a few mothers in the hospital. I've visited quite a few of you kids when you were small. And um, I'm... You're beautiful in your mother's sight, anyway, most of you, right? But give, give a baby a couple months, and they genuinely are, are very pretty. Not just right out of the womb oftentimes, though. But here, this one, right, was, was beautiful. But I, I must admit, I love coming to the hospital to see babies. Ten fingers and ten toes. Breathing, mouth. No, it's amazing. So all babies are beautiful, certainly there. But there was something special about Moses. And, and my guess is that you know the story. Halfway through verse 20, he was brought up for three months in his father's house. Can't cry. Shh. Shh. Can't cry. 
Moses can't cry because he'd be exposed. And if he was exposed, then he would be killed. <clears throat> but after three months, the cries got too loud. He was exposed. And then Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. I'm sure you remember the story, many of you, most of you. Pharaoh's daughter was down by the river bathing and she saw this basket floating amongst the reeds, maybe like these palm leaves that we have here. And this basket comes in and she looks at it and she notices it. And uh, she went to see what it was because she heard the crying. And there was Moses, a baby, crying there. And Pharaoh's daughter took pity on this little boy and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, and his sister's name was Miriam. Okay, good. That was another trivia question that I passed. Miriam came and said, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the girl went and called the child's mother, whose name was Jochebed, good. <clears throat> Pharaoh's daughter then said to her, Take the child away and nurse her for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. An Egyptian name, by the way. And really, none of this was an accident. It was God in Egypt protecting his people Far away from the holy place. Moses would be the great deliverer of the people of Israel. And verse 22 speaks about his greatness. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Stephen emphasizes how mighty this man Moses was. Mighty in words and deeds. That means he could speak well. That means he was active. He was energetic. He was doing good things. And, uh, but it's interesting here, though, what Stephen emphasizes here is that Moses was not instructed in the ways of God. He was instructed in the ways of the Egyptians. He was instructed in the way of temple sacrifice. Not, not temple sacrifice, but Egyptian sacrifice or Egyptian worship or, or whatever they did. But God really used him anyway, e- even though he was educated apart from the law. It's kind of might give us a perspective as well. I mean, homeschool, it's great, right? Christian education is great, but God can use people who are educated outside of the homeschool Christian school world, like he used Pharaoh here, where that might be our temple, right? To realize that God works beyond what we might think. So here we move on. You got Moses' birth, and now you got Moses' exile. And uh, here's where, where the exile is, is, is coming, Okay. Actually, let's let's try exile. Moses' birth, Moses' exile. Here we go. Uh, verse 23. <clears throat> when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And we'll get to that map here in, in just a little bit. But picture Moses. He's 40 years old. Up to this point, until he's 40, he lived his whole life in the palace. Now, he knew about the Jewish people. He knew about the Hebrews. But, but only probably from the Egyptian royalty perspective. Like, there's this other group of people, we've been slaves, so they do our work for us, so they help us in the economics of the day. It helps make us rich. So we ought to look at these people and see them as a place of, of revenue and income. Now, however, Moses is also aware of his adoption. He looked different than his brothers and sisters. And he knew that, and he was aware that he was not a native Egyptian. Probably Pharaoh told him the story, oftentimes, but his, his name, how he's drawn out of the water, he had had Hebrew blood, and up to this point, the, the idea here, it seems like he, he didn't mingle very much with the Jews. He was off in the palace. 
away. But when he was 40 years old, verse 23, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Right? Now, where do you think it came into his heart from? Deep from his heart? Probably not. It probably came from the Lord. It was the Lord's working in Moses' life, I think, even far away from Israel. In fact, by the way, Moses, just like Abraham, if you think about it, um, God worked in Abraham's life when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. And um, now we see God working in the life of Moses while he's in Egypt. And, and both these were like, like called from their place to kind of like go and bring these people and, and lead people uh, into the promised land. God's work is not confined to the holy place of Jerusalem. God, God can work anywhere. And, and I'm reminded of the story that, that William Farley tells. It was a great book, Gospel-Powered Parenting. Um, I know some of you, we've given this book out, we've passed it out, we've read it, but this is how he starts his book. I, I, just, I just feel like this story should be a great story to tell as we think about God's saving work in faraway places. First chapter. There I was, lying in bed, wide awake, my eyes searching the dark bedroom ceiling for any sign of hope. Are you awake? I asked my wife, Judy. I can't sleep. Is something on your mind? I didn't need to ask. I knew the answer. Our daughter was on a date with a friend we did not approve of. It was after midnight. In addition, since the relationship began, she began being distant, obstinate, and uncooperative. Things were not well. Um, so it's a pastor, by the way, struggling with his children. I'm worried sick, my wife whispered. I can't sleep. I reflect on the battles of recent weeks. My once compliant daughter had become difficult. Most distressingly, she showed little interest in Christ or spiritual things. The influence of her new friend was not good. I reflected on the title of James Dobson's book, Parenting Isn't for Cowards, but I was a coward, and I needed courage. I needed hope, and I had little. Where is she, my wife asked. What are we doing? She's been so different lately. I'm worried sick. Anxiety, stress, and fear dripped from her words. It had not helped the situation. I had not helped the situation. Exasperated by my daughter's sullen rebellion, I'd even flirted with the idea of spanking her. And my wife's common sense appeal brought me back to reality. It was a dark time. We were discouraged at the end of our resources. Maybe you felt the same way. But God used this dark period in our parenting experience to deeply humble us, and we are grateful. For 20 years, our parenting had been so, seemed so easy. What had... We had what most would consider a model family. Sadly, we had begun to take pride in our parenting. We'd begun to look down on our friends with troubled teams. And God's word is clear. Pride goes before destruction. God's opposed to the proud. We were proud. The time for humbling had come. God opposed us through our daughter's problems and brought us to our knees. We spent much time in prayer and confession. And looking back, we realized that it was a wonderful turning point. Thankfully, our daughter also reached a turning point through the process in a filthy Calcutta Hotel. Yes, that's India. And we know a bit about filthy <laughs> hotels in India. Sick with the flu and desperately homesick, this beautiful young woman finally called out to Christ. A year later, God brought her a wonderful, godly husband. This writing, they have three attractive children and actively serve in our local church. She's become a glorious gift to the church, to her husband, to her children, and to her wider family. I've told this true story to let you know that Judy and I don't have it all together. As do all parents, we have learned from God's gracious discipline and we are absolutely dependent upon God's spirit to complete the parenting process. We have one job, faithfulness. It's job, God's job to bring results. I just re remember that story and just thinking about how 
how this girl, this daughter far off in India, the only way that she's going to come back to God is if God's going to get her. If God's going to get her attention. See, God can work anywhere. And God does work in India. And God does work when children are far off. And God worked in Moses' life, even when he was was far off and he worked in his heart. He said, go visit the children of Israel. God wanted Moses to see and understand the plight of his people. We read in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, that, that Moses um, went out to the people and looked on their burdens. Here for the first time, he's going to go, go up close and see the personal hardships that people were, were facing. See, it's one thing to know about hardships where, where people are facing um, in theory, but it's another thing to know it firsthand. I mean, I just think about worldwide poverty. And uh, that's something where, where it's different when it's, when it's in theory and when it's firsthand. I mean, you might hear about oppression, you might hear about poverty, you might, you might know about it in theory. You might see pictures, read reports, but nothing will strike you so deeply as seeing people in this the most distressing of situations, as, as, as I have, and been in Nepal and Havana as well, and been in India. And, and you witness the hardships for yourselves, and just think about the lives of those people that they live subsisting on a dollar to a day that's what moses did he saw their hardships firsthand it changed him verse 24 seeing one of them being wrong he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the egyptian when moses saw the oppression for the for the, for the first time firsthand he burned with anger and killed this egyptian in exodus 2 11 and 12 we read that he saw an egyptian beating a hebrew one of his people and he looked this way and that way to make sure that no one saw and then he struck him down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. At this point, he was a murderer. He tried to keep it hush-hush. He thought he was justified because in his mind, he knew that he was the one who's going to deliver Israel from all their troubles. He just, he just knew this. I think so God had revealed it to him. And that's the point of verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He thought, oh, it'd be clear, right? I'm, I'm going to destroy this Egyptian. I sit in the Egyptian palace, and I've got control over the Hebrews, and I'm going to deliver you, people of Israel. But the end of verse 25, they did not understand. And that became clear the next day. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, probably physically, like Moses is there, and he probably, this is probably a physical reference, just pushed him aside and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And then came those, those words, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? In other words, right, the word got out. And everyone knew that he was a, a murderer and that he would killed this Egyptian. And then this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Moses found out, right, if the Egyptian hierarchy found out, he would be killed for sure. And so he fled. He fled to Midian. Okay, so let's go back to our map. All this has been happening in Egypt. Moses, 40 years in Egypt, protecting him. And then uh, he appears to him when he's 40 years old and he flees to Midian. You say, well, where's Midian? Who knows where Midian is? It's on the map someplace. Here's where it is. South of Jerusalem, a couple hundred miles, just uh, on the, I guess, uh, the east side there of the, um, of the, the Gulf of Aqaba is what it's called. 
today. I don't know what it's called back then, but far away from Jerusalem. And, and again, that's, that's the point. Just way out. And God, right, brought him, that, that's where he was. And God didn't forget Moses there. Moses was there for, for 40 years. And then God calls him. And this is our, our final point this morning, God's calling now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. If you do the math, the life of Moses, right? He was 40 years in Egypt, and then he was 40 years in Midian. So how old is he? He's 80 years old. And um, now at the age of 80, the idea is here, just kind of a normal day, and he sees this sight. He, he sees this, this bush burning. Um, He's not quite sure about it. Um, and, and I think that this day was probably a normal day. I mean, you look at life of Moses when he was in Midian. He married Zipporah. He had two sons. Um, he, he'd married the daughter of the priest of Midian. Probably means marrying into a priestly family brought him into the religion of the, those in Midian. Not worshiping the one true God. He probably wasn't seeking God in any way. But here was this bush and God was seeking him. And again, God... Moses, so like Aaron, or like Abraham, it says in Joshua 24, verse 2, that Abraham came from an idol-worshiping family. Not sure how much Abraham was really seeking the Lord before God sought him. And Moses was here, probably out in the wilderness, probably just shepherding like he always was. And then God came and sought him in the burning bush. It was strange to see his bush. It's on fire but not consumed. It's not an everyday occurrence you have that. I mean, normally, right, when there's a fire, the fuel, which is the wood or... Whatever's burning, that's consumed, but not so in this case. That's why it attracted the attention of Moses. That's why he went to look at the bush. And in verse 31, he saw something far more interesting than the bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. So it's not so much what he saw, but what he heard that struck him. And he heard these words, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. So he goes and he hears these vo- this voice from heaven, from its voice that says, I am, right, God of your fathers, right, the one who called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and I'm the father of Isaac, and I'm the father of Jacob. And, and naturally then Moses did what we all would do. He trembled and did not dare to look. We see that at the end of verse 32. This is how it always is when people encounter God. They, they tremble. They, they want to hide themselves. When, when uh, Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he was the most righteous man in the land. He was a prophet. He spoke rightly from God, and yet he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I am undone. Ezekiel also, when he saw the glory of God, was, was undone. When um, Peter got a close look, at the majesty of Jesus, said, depart from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man, right? When, when, when we see the majesty of God, it's, it's attractive, yes, but it's also, it's also repelling because we know our sinfulness and we know His holiness. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him in verse 33, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Where is Moses standing? He's not standing in Israel. He's not standing in the holy place. He's not standing on the Temple Mount. But here it is. Mount Horeb is actually where he's standing. It's the wilderness of Mount Sinai. These people who hold the the holy place in such high esteem, 
say, no, the holy place here. Take off the sandals of your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. You see, the point here is that the temple isn't the only place of worship. It's not just that limited parcel of land. But here there are other places where there's worship of the Lord as well. And then he says, right, this, this great verse in verse 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now this starts, right, the, the whole great redemption story of Moses. God, Moses coming and redeeming Israel from slavery after such a, a long time. And that story is great. It, it's told in, in Exodus chapter verses 3 through really about chapter 12, 13, almost to 20, and then the, the giving of the law. And there's, there's so much there involving signs and wonders and sickness and famine and death and miracles and splitting of the sea and giving the water and so much. We don't have time for that, but we do have time for verse 34. That's what I want to reflect upon, which is the gospel, which really will help focus our attention then upon the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate at the end of my message just consider what verse 34 says about these, these elements of here. He says, God sees. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. We're talking about people who are afflicted. And really, that's where the gospel starts. It, it starts with us being afflicted and being tormented and being tried and being troubled. You know, when things go really well with you all the time, there's no need for Jesus. But it's when you're afflicted and when you see your sin that that's the perfect time when you need Jesus. And these people here were particularly afflicted with their slavery, unfair treatment, right? Born into the system where they need to make all these bricks time after time and they, they get taskmasters over them, brutally brutalizing them and it's a bad situation, it's awful. They were in affliction, but so likewise with the gospel, we need to see our own affliction too many times we don't see it. But that's the first element in the gospel is really to see our affliction. And, and then it's interesting what here God then hears. He says, surely I have seen their affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And second, he says, I have heard their groaning. Like in, in other words, right, their affliction has caused them to, to speak out to the Lord, to cry to the Lord, to say, oh, Lord, I, I need and we need help. Right. And particularly even they could claim the promises of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and said, God, we are your people. We are of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And we are we are here. In fact, it even says in uh, Exodus chapter two, right at the end, as he heard their their groaning, he says he remembered their covenant, the covenant that he made. And so they're they're crying out to the Lord. So like in the gospel, we need to see our affliction of our sin and we just need to cry out for help to the Lord. And anyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. And that's the third element that's right here. Right? I've seen their affliction. I've heard their groaning. And now I've come down to deliver them. That is, I've come down to save them. I mean, we, we're celebrating here. we got the palm branches here for, for Palm Sunday. It's the time in which the king came into Jerusalem. Right? Jesus came into Jerusalem to, to save the people. And they were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed he comes in the name of the Lord. Hey, look at this wonderful Savior. And yet, really, they, they turned on him pretty quickly, just like Moses. That's exactly how the story uh, plays out. Like they, they rejected him, even though he led them out, even though he received living oracles. They, they turned away. And they didn't want Moses. Oh, yes, there was some redemption there, but it wasn't full redemption like Jesus provides. And even on Palm Sunday, right, come into the, to the 
the city of Jerusalem and the people receiving him, but they turn on him so quickly and put him to death. But that death then becomes the source of our salvation. And with Moses, he finishes verse 34, come and I will send you to Egypt. There it is, God saving his people through a mediator. Moses becomes the mediator through bringing these people out of slavery. And so likewise, Jesus then becomes our mediator to take us out of our sin and our slavery uh, to our own lusts and desires. So I, I just wanted to end, end there in verse 34. But next week we're going to look at the rebellion of the people. These people hold the law so high, rejected Moses. But verse 34, let's just savor these things, right? That God looks and sees affliction. He's open to his ears to hear us cry. And he will come down and save us in Jesus if we but trust and hope in him. So let's pray and then we'll segue to the Lord's Supper. Father, I would pray, God, that we as well, all who are, who are here, would realize that you work, God, in, in places other than Jerusalem, other than this, this holy place. And, and for us, of course, oh God, we know that. We're in the Rockford area, God. We know that, that you work here, and you work all the way around the world. And yet, God, I pray that you would just help us to, to go back in time and understand Stephen. And understand why this was such a big deal for them. And realize, God, that we ought to, to rejoice that we can worship you in spirit and in truth wherever we are. And I pray you'd find us as to be true worshipers of you. Who worship you in spirit and in truth. I just thank you even for verse 34 here in the gospel. would pray that even for those who are here today and not embracing Christ as their Savior. Would realize that they help them to see their affliction they're in because of their sin. God, it caused them to cry out to you in their groaning. God, that you might ultimately save them and deliver them from their sins. That's what Jesus did for us. Father, in that we do rejoice. And with our heads bowed, I just would encourage you all to uh, just think about your life. And the, the Lord's Supper is for those who have trusted in Christ, who, who are following after his ways. And we take the bread and we drink of the cup because we love him. And because he is our all. And we have cried out to him and he has delivered us. And in that we rejoice. And this is just yet another reminder as we've done this every Sunday in Lent. just would encourage you to examine your hearts and your lives. To confess any sin that you have. Confess it before the Lord and seek to take the, the bread and the cup in a worthy manner. God, realizing that we just need you. We need to trust in you in, in all things. And so, Father, we pray you'd be with us, help us, and strengthen us. God, may you... May our worship here that's not in Jerusalem, God, be as, as well-pleasing to you as the worship of your saints who have been abroad. Abraham and Ur as you brought him out, and, and Moses and Midian as you brought him out. God, thank you how you're a saving God who goes after people in different places. We pray in Jesus' name.